Let's come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us, be present with us, and show us what you would want us to see from all of this tonight in your son's precious name. Amen. Joshua chapter 23, we're going to have the farewell address of Joshua, and he's just a, he's not near as verbose as uh, Moses was on his farewell address. Uh, do you remember, everybody remember how long Moses' farewell address was? A whole chapter? No. Three whole chapters? No. A whole a long time. Book. The whole book. Long the whole book of Deut Deuteronomy was his farewell address to the people. A long time. Uh, so he, he just had a few words to say. Uh, uh, Joshua is one chapter. <laughs> he, he, he is uh, not going to speak that long, but he's a very powerful closing message to, to the people. So Joshua 23, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass that a long time after that the Lord had given rest to the Israel from all their enemies round about them, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. And Joshua called the Israel and all their elders and, and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said to them, I am old and, stric and stricken in age. I, and you have seen all the Lord, the Lord your God has done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that has fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain and all the inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut, cut off even unto the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he sh shall expel them from before you and drive them out from your sight and you shall possess their land as the Lord your God has promised unto you. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses that you turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left, that you come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make their mention of the name of their gods or cause to swear by them, neither to serve them nor bow yourselves before unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God as you have done unto this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you the great nations, the strong, but as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God. He, is the, he, he it is that fights for you as he has promised you. Take good heed thereof unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Else if you do not in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these remain among you and shall make marriage with them and go in unto them and you and they to you know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out these nations from before you but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you and behold this day I am going the way of all the earth and you know all in your and you know in your all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord our, your God spoke concerning you, all are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Therefore it shall come to pass that, that as all good things are come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things which he has, which, until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. When you have trespassed the covenant of the Lord your God with the commandment, which he commanded you, and have gone to serve other gods, and bowed yourself down to them, then the anger of the Lord shall be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given unto you. All right. This is Joshua's the beginning of his farewell. He's, 
actually going to go into the next chapter, so I guess he's got two chapters, a little more long-winded than I remembered. Uh, but it starts out, it says, And it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies around him, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. I mean, in other words, he, he became an old man. <laughs> Very poetic way to say he became old. Uh, you know, and, you know, and he's not uh, too bad. He's, he's going to be 110 years old. Uh, not, not too big a deal. <laughs> that would be like 60 years old already. <laughs> Probably. Well, in that day, they were already starting to die, you know, be, be a lot younger. They were being a lot younger at that time. So, But it says, you know, God had given the people rest. And this is why we spent these last few chapters talking about the division of the land and everything. We noted those couple places where they had not finished pushing out the people of the land. And remember, what we said was that they didn't want to. They were tired of battling, and they just didn't want to fight anymore, so they quit fighting because they had never lost a battle other than which battle? AI. AI. And they lost that one for disobedience. Okay. When Achan took the stuff out of Jericho and they went to fight AI without asking God whether they should, they lost. And that was the only battle that they had lost in the promised land because God fought the battles. Remember we had the one battle where God cast down the hailstones and he said the hailstones killed more people uh, and God chased the people out and he gave supernatural strength to them. They never lost their battles in, except for the ones that they decided not to fight. The army when he, when he separated the Red River, the Red Sea, let his people through and mm -hmm. the rest of them out. And God took them through the Red Sea and, and the, uh, the Egyptians tried to go through and got destroyed. Uh, and God will fight for us. And so Joshua's getting old. He knows that he's getting ready to, to pass on, so he calls a con the congregation together. Specifically, all the leader elders and their judges and their officers. And he starts out with the fact that it's quite obvious probably to everybody, I'm old. <laughs> I'm old and dying is what he's saying. I'm going to give you my last, my last uh, words. And we see this all through the scriptures. Many of these guys seem to know that they were dying. And, you know, I've met people who seem to know, you know, that are older, that seem to know that they're just, it's time to go. Well, and, and a lot of it is they just know. They know that it's time and they want to say goodbye to their family. They want to give a blessing to their family. They want to encourage their family. And in this case, Joshua is wanting to encourage the nation because he knows what God has done for them and he knows what God will do to them when they, and if you'll note in here, he says, when you do these things, he goes, because that was what Moses had said already, Here's your blessings. When you're following God, this is what you're going to go. And, and when you turn from God, these are the curses that are going to come upon you. And Joshua knows that the people eventually are going to turn from God because that was the words. When you, when they, when you turn, when you, when you turn away from God, and he's trying to encourage them not to do it. But he knows that that's something they're going to do because remember, the Israel nation has been very disobedient all along from the time they left Egypt even during the time of the conquest 
Uh, they kept murmuring and griping all the time, and God came several times close to destroying them, and Moses just kept coming up and saying, no, God, you can't get rid of them. Don't get rid of them because you know, your testimony will be ruined if you destroy them and start with me because the people will say you weren't strong enough to take them into the, to where you promised. And so he defended them so, several times. And then they were disobedient in the promised land in that they didn't push the people out of the nation. And we're going to see that those people that they left are going to be exactly what Joshua says in this chapter, problems for them. And to this day, the nations that they didn't destroy are problems for them. So we see that over and over. Verse 3 says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done and unto all these nations because of you and for, the, and for the Lord your God. It is he that has fought for you. You've watched God be successful. You've seen him fight. And in our lives as Christians, we can watch God do our fights for us if we just lay back and say, it's, it's yours, God. God, I'm going to just let you defend. And you know, it's so much nicer when you let God defend and you don't worry about how you're going to win the victory. You just watch God deliver. Walking fight, not by sight. And God is very, very able to deliver us. And he doesn't need the help. Matter of fact, if we're trying to help, he'll stand back and say, you know, I'll let you do it. You know, I'll, I'll watch you fumble and bumble and, and make a mess out of things. But, you know, when he does say move, we're to move. And we're to do what he says to do. And he goes, your God's delivered you. He's fought for you. You haven't lost any battles. And then he goes, verse 4, he gives him a little bit of history. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain in the inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off even into the great sea. So from Jordan to the Mediterranean was their territory. And it was their land. And he divided it. And I'm glad he didn't rename all the cities again. <laughs> I didn't want to reread all those cities. So, but he says, from the Jordan all the way to the Mediterranean belongs to us. And he could have gone north and south. From Goshen, remember we, they divided Goshen to them, all the way up to all close to the Euphrates, he, he gave to them. Now, this is the land that Israel is supposed to have that they don't currently have. And when Jesus comes back for the millennial kingdom, they will, he will rule from them and they will have their entire nation and they will have everything to uh, all the rest of the place on the, on the west, uh, east side because that is what's been promised. Everywhere that Abraham walked belongs to them. And that means from the Euphrates all the way to Egypt, all the way to the Mediterranean, all the way to the Jordan, even some of the east of the Jordan. And then he said the same promise to uh, Isaac and to Jacob, and they wandered all that land as well. It belongs to them. It's been promised to them. And there's nothing the world's going to do in the long run to keep them from having their land because God's going to give it back to them. Because they're yeah. So, all right. Verse 5, And the Lord your God, he shall expel from them from before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess the land as the Lord your God has promised you. So Joshua is still telling them these nations that you haven't kicked out when you finally get tired of dealing with them God's going to kick them out. When you're ready to fight and kick them out God's ready to kick them out and we're going to find out that they didn't get ready to fight. They're going to be a problem all through the book of Judges. They're going to be a problem all through Saul's reign. David finally expels them, but he doesn't eliminate all of them. 
He doesn't kill them all, but he does take all the towns and he, and he makes them vassals, pretty much what they have done. Remember, the ones that have not been conquered, have not been moved out, have been made vassals. They've been forced to pay tribute. And uh, David's going to do the same thing to them. He's, gonna, he's not going to kill them. He's not going to destroy them, as he probably should have. He's going to make vassals out of them and make them pay tribute. And David wanted lots of money, so he made them pay tribute. And his Solomon made them, uh, Solomon, his son Solomon made them pay tribute. And until after Solomon, then they rebelled and became a big thorn in the side of Israel again. So we see this thing that Joshua saying, get rid of them. Go do what you're supposed to do. You know, how many times do we as Christians not obey God's word and do what he tells us to do? Now, and this is something we've got to learn to just rest in him and, and listen. Listen. He tells us to go and, go and witness and make disciples. He tells us to teach others. He tells us to be responsible for our children, raising them up in the righteousness of God. And so often we don't do these things. Well, we have all kinds of excuses why we don't, but that's what they are, is excuses. And, you know, we've got to be careful that we don't just start looking at all the excuses. Why can't we do whatever it is that God tells us? God, I'm just too shy. I'm too quiet. I'm not, I'm, I don't get out enough. I don't do this enough. I don't do that enough. And God says, I'm telling you to do it. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses and turn not aside therefrom from the right or to the left. And I love this. Be very courageous. You know, the Christianity that's taught in our world today is really a Christianity for wimps. Accept Jesus and do nothing. And you're okay. And that's not the Christianity of the Bible. That's not God's way of doing things. He says, you know, for men, man up. Be a man. Be a leader. Do what he asks you to do. And for women, same thing. You know, get out there and do what he's asked you to do. And it's very important. You know, I told people, I've told a lot of people, well, well I don't know that, that uh, I really want to be a Christian. I go, yeah, you're probably not brave enough to be a Christian anyway. Especially when I'm talking to men out there in prison. I go, you're probably not brave enough to be a Christian anyway because it takes guts to be a Christian. And this is very important for us. It is a courageous thing to stand out from the crowd and not do what everybody else does. And, you know, so often we're told, you know, hey, just do what you want. You know, as long as you take Jesus, you know, he's the only way. And they might go that way. Sometimes they don't even go that far. You know, accept Jesus and everything will be really wonderful for you. And Jesus said, you know, they hated me. They're going to hate you. To be a Christian is a, is a place that people are not going to like you. And it's just as simple as that. If you're following Christ and you're living a Christian lifestyle, people are not going to like being around you. Why? Because you'll hear it. We have all heard it. You just think you're holier than, than, than me. You, know, you think you're so special because you're a Christian. You, know, you, you won't do these things or... or well, you, you don't hang out with us anymore. You know, you don't, you don't like doing the things we do and you think you're more special than we are. We'll, you'll hear all kinds of things. And it's not that we think we're more special than them. It's not that we, we just don't want to be around sin. And so we don't be around it. <laughs> you know, and this is something we've got to keep in mind. Be courageous. It takes strength to be a, a Christian. Peter, when he told Jesus in the upper room, even if everybody else denies you, I won't deny you. And Jesus says, this night you will deny me before the cro uh, three times before the cock crows. You know, and it was very true. Peter, when he said it, truly believed, I'm not going to leave you. you know, I'm a big, tough fisherman. I'm not afraid of these guys. 
you know, and, and the Garden of Gethsemane, he's the one that drew the sword and chopped off the you know, ear of the servant. I'm sure he was aiming for the head and missed the head and hit the ear. Uh, you know, he was ready to fight. He was ready to fight a multitude of people. And then a couple hours later, he's denying that he even knows Jesus to little girls. You know, he goes from being ready to fight to keep Jesus from being arrested to Jesus is arrested, getting ready to die, and he's denying even to little girls that he's ever known him and starts swearing. To save his skin, right? Well, just... It came, you know, but he wasn't afraid of his skin when he was standing with Jesus and a great multitude of soldiers. Okay. He, but when Jesus said, put that sword away, because you don't know the spirit you're, you're in, it all of a sudden shook him to the core. Well, he didn't know what was going on. It was a change for him. And we need to be very careful because oftentimes we're going with God and all of a sudden God says, I want you to do something or, or he pulls the rug out from under our feet and we're going, God, what's going on? Everything was going fine. I, I had a really good job. I had a nice home and now I don't have a job. I don't have a home. I don't have, you know, my health is gone. We're, we're feeling like Job. And God said, are you trusting me? Are you trusting me? Or are you trusting in the things I've given you? One thing... Yeah. One thing Joshua really understood with his people is when everything is going good is when you're in the most dangerous place with God. Because it's so easy to say, I'm just used to this. This is the way it's supposed to be. And oftentimes God will say, no, I've got, I want to I shake it up. I want you to depend on me. And it's very easy for us to start saying that God's blessings are normal and just expect the blessings without ever thinking about what it is we need to accomplish. And God says, if you, you, know, you need to be trusting me. You need to be looking at me, not the blessings, not the gifts. And if we start focusing too much on the blessings and gifts, God will pull the blessings and gifts away for a while and says, okay, let me show you what you're supposed to be having. Especially when we forget that he's the giver. And we just say, God, I'm just wonderfully living another, this wonderful life. He is the giver. He's the giver of everything for us. And then he says, be careful not to turn away. Verse 7 says, and that you come not among these nations, these that remain among you neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God, as he you have done unto this day. In other words, you've got these idols still among you. Do not look at them. And we want to, we know that they didn't get rid of these idols, and these idols were a, a draw to them from this point on. They keep ending up, they follow especially Baal, but they end up doing Moloch and all these other gods that they worship. So we look at this whole process of, he's warning them. He says, be courageous. Don't even think about these other gods. And part of why God wanted this nation and eliminated was, their sinfulness, and the gods that they represented. Because remember, before they got there, how did, everybody remember how Balaam told Balak to get the people to sin? He said, send in your women and entice those, the men of Israel to worship your gods with them. And they did, and God slew several thousand people because of that sin. But the worship, the, the worship of these gods were always within, within whatever was sin to begin with. 
You know, when you worship the idols, they took a sin and they exalted the sin, and the way to worship that idol was to commit that sin. Uh, when he worshiped Astoroth, which is a fertility goddess, it was reveling in sex, and illicit sex was the way that you worship that god. Idols always take the worst of men, exalt it, and then people worship that, that, god. that particular god. And it's, you know, this is what happens in idol worship. And God says, you're looking at the wrong thing. And idols sound really good to people because it plays to the flesh. What I really want to do, oh, I can worship this God and do what I really wanted to do anyway. And so it, it plays to us because God says, deny yourself. You know, let the spirit crucify yourself. Don't do all the things your flesh wants you to be doing. We, we look at all these things that are going on and we say, this is what God's looking for. He wants us to be devoted to him. Now, in our day and age, we go, well, we don't have idols. Well, we've got lots of idols out there that we, we bow down to. You know, uh, entertainment and television can be an idol for a lot of people. They spend all their time being entertained to death and not spending time with God. We still have the, the gods for sex and, you know, and, and through pornography and, and, and prostitution and all those things that are going on. We still have, all the gods are still out there. They're still worshipped just as much as they ever have been. We just don't recognize them as idols because we don't have a great big golden statue that we bow down to. But we're still worshiping the same thing that those gods represented. And we need to be aware of all of this. You know, we need to be very careful that we don't find ourselves worshiping idols. And a good way to look at it is what occupies your time? Jesus said, out of your abundance of your heart you speak. What do you speak about? Is he number one? Is he what's abundant in our heart? Or is it something else? And then Joshua told him, cleave unto the Lord. Be glued to God. Be glued to God. The way that he talked about, even in marriage, you know, it's, God uses the picture of marriage to be the picture he wants. He wants you to be glued to him, just as a husband and wife are supposed to be glued together. That's who they're, who they're supposed to be with for life. And then God says, I want you. I want you glued to me. And once you've made your decision to come to me, we're, you're stuck with me, basically, he says. You know, you're, you're stuck with me, and we're glued together hold on tight but you know the bigger part of that is that he's holding on to us and he won't let go i kind of think when i think about this picture i think of the the little child when you're when they're you know walking around a busy street you know you say hold my hand what you're really saying is i want i'm going to hold on to your hand and you hold on to that hand and you know when they're starting to pull now we we of course are not strong enough necessarily to keep them all the time but we hold on to their hand tight enough that they don't get away. Well, God's holding on to us tight enough that we don't get away. That's right. And he's strong enough not to let us get away. Yeah. Now, that little child might get away from mom or dad because if he pulls hard enough or at just the right time, we're not doing that to God. He's not going to let us. He's not going to let us go. All right, verse 9. For the Lord has driven out from, among, from before you the great nations and strong. But as for you, no man has been able to stand up before you until this day. And this is his statement. You know, we, we, don't, you know, we read these lists of people and we don't really realize these are strong nations that, they, that they've kicked out. They have destroyed strong nations and they've done it quickly. Remember, it only took them seven years to conquer the promised land from end to end. Seven years. And when, you, when you're walking, when you're, when you're battling these strong nations, you're battling strong cities. You know, we don't even understand what the 
meaning of this. When they took and fought walled cities, walled cities usually took a year or more to fall down in those days, especially the thick ones, because what you did is you circled the city and you kept them from getting food and water, and you starved them to death, and they finally surrendered. And God said, just gave them all these cities. And they didn't destroy the walls or anything else. They didn't, you know, these cities were just given to them by God. God defeated them. You know, and we don't understand this because in our day, you know, what's a walled city do? You know, we just, you know, fly over it and, you know, drop a helicopter in over the walled city, you know, bombard it with howitzers enough and the whole city will fall, you know, the whole wall will fall down. But in that day, the wall was a great deterrent from the attackers, usually. You know, you could usually just stand in there and it was hard to surround a city for a year or more and keep everybody out of it. It wasn't something you could really do. And yet, God delivered these cities to them. And uh, Jericho is the only wall that he tore down. <laughs> so we look at this. He says, God has delivered you. No one has been able to stand unto you. Verse 10, one man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he it is that fights for you as he has promised. I kind of picture this. One person putting a thousand to, to flight. And you know, this has been Israel's reputation even in modern days. They have won battles that there's no way they could win, where one person, you know, one or two people are, end up being surrendered to by an entire division. Uh, bombs not blowing, you know, falling down and not blowing up, not damage being, not being done as it's supposed to. This has been what God has told them, and it's even to this day where those things are happening, that they win. We, we look at this whole process, and God says, you're going to be victorious. I think about this when I read something like this. I think about Jonathan and his shield bearer going up to fight the Philistine garrison. And they're going, let's go up there. And if they tell us to come up, God's delivered us to their hands. And what do the Philistines say? Well, come on up here thinking, you know, hey, we'll you'll show this young, young kid who's, who's boss. And he's going, one should put a thousand to a flight. And he goes up and he's, he's killing people and knocking them down. And the his armor bearer is finishing them off as he's knocking them, you know, knocking them down. And they take the entire garrison and, and rout the Philistines. And this has happened over and over and over again for it. When we read about David's mighty men, it's all kinds of stories of one man killing 100 people, another one killing 1,000 people. You know, his, they were honoring God and God protected them. You know, God will deliver us. We do not have anything to be afraid of when we're walking with God. He, he will deliver us. He will deliver us from the enemy that we see. He'll deliver us from the enemy we don't see. He says, I am with you. I will battle for you. This is one of the reasons we keep sharing. You know, we need to just let God be our defense. When people attack us, we let God be our defender. And God will protect because he's made that promise. Verse 11 says, Take good heed thereof unto yourself that you love the Lord your God. And this is something we need to be very especially careful about. Do we love God? How are we showing that we love God? You know, God says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I've heard, believe me, I've heard it over and over throughout the years. Well, you just have to accept me the way I am because God accepts me the way I am. Well, you know what? God does accept you as the way you are, but he wants you to change. <laughs> you know, he, does not want, he does not expect you to be wallowing in the same sins that you were committing when you first came to him 30 years later. If that's what you're doing, you need to really look and say, do you know God at that point? 
Because, yes, it's possible, but you're sure not going to prove it by, by the life that God's not changing. <laughs> and this is what he said. Take heed that you love God, that you keep his commandments. And keeping his commandments is sometimes very difficult. And especially in our day and age, as it's getting worse and worse in our world, and morality is starting to become less and less amongst the people. And when you stand out and you make a stand and you say, no, that's wrong, people go, well, who are you to say that's wrong? And if you've ever made a stance on it, you're going to hear that. Mm -hmm. Who are you to say that's wrong? Well, I'm just telling you what God says. God says it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter whether you believe, believe it or don't believe it, it's wrong. And you'll say, well, I don't believe the Bible. I go, that doesn't matter either. If just your fact of disbelieving it doesn't make it wrong. And, you know, I, and I've been that very bold with people. It's like it doesn't matter to me what you believe. You, know, you can tell me you don't believe in gravity and step off, a cliff, uh, off the cliff or the top of a building, you're going down. No matter how much you don't believe in gravity, you're going to go down and not float in the air like they would in a cartoon. You know, you're not going to stand there in midair because you don't believe in, in gravity. Gravity is going to take you whether you believe it or not. You don't believe in eating and you don't eat for more than 40 days, you are going to die. You believe I don't need to drink fluids and you don't drink for, for seven days or so, you're going to die. Okay? Well, I don't believe there's such a thing as oxygen and you try to get no oxygen, you're going to be dead very quick. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't take long and your disbelief of something does not mean that it's not true. You, know, you could be drinking something, I don't believe this is poison, and it says poison all over the bottle, and you drink it, and you're dead. Your disbelief does not change it, and God, disbelief of God's word does not change the fact that it's true. The very fact that you don't believe in God does not mean that he ceases to exist because you choose not to believe in him. You know, and we need to keep that in mind. We follow him because he is true. And we're going to stick out. If we're really following God, we're going to stick out like a sore thumb in this, in this world. People are going to look at it and say, you're awfully strange. You don't, you don't do this. You don't drink. You don't smoke. You don't, you know, don't, don't do drugs. You're not, you're not having sex with everybody, every, you know, different person every night. You know, what do you do for fun? Have you ever heard that? What do you do for fun? Well, I go to church. <laughs> I study God's word. I hang out with God's people. That's fun. Well, I don't know how that's fun. Well, come and do it for a while. See if you don't have some fun. But, you know, we, we look at this whole... Uh, process that he says and he says love God love God and show that you love him and then he goes in verse 12 else <laughs> uh, which means something different is going to be presented here he goes God has been blessing you he's given you everything he's given you victory love God take you know be of good courage else if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these na nations even these that remain among you and shall make marriages with them and go in unto them and they to you, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive them out, these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. Okay. All right, he goes, if you're not going to follow God and you're going to seek after these other gods, there's going to be a consequence. And this one, he's echoing Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy, Moses had said, obey God 
and he's going to be with you. You're going to win. He's going to bless you. Your crops are going to come in, good, in due season. The, the weather is going to be good. You're going to get all these blessings. He goes, but if you disobey, all the bad things are going to happen to you. All the things opposite of what I just told you was going to happen. And we look at this and says, if you don't cleave to God and you cleave to the remnant, Okay. And he didn't even say that they were going to first start out cleaving to the gods. Now, he knew that they would cleave to the gods. That was shown before when, the, when uh, Balak sent in the, this temp, temptation. When they went with and cleaved to the women, they went in with, with their gods and angered God. And Joshua's telling them the same thing. You're not going to go and just turn immediately to these gods and turn from God and go straight to these gods. And if you've ever found yourself drifting from God, that's exactly what happens. You don't find yourself in the bottom of the pit right away. You didn't just step off into the pit. You usually just turn to God, and you might have even lived well for a couple for months or a year or two. You know, I'm not, I'm not really bad. I, I don't go to church. I'm not hanging out with God's people. But, you know, hey, I'm not I'm reading my Bible once or twice a, a year. Uh, you know, I pray, I pray for my meals. And God is saying, yeah, but you're not where you were before you turned away from me. And then that cycle happens when we turn away from God. And this is what I shared the other day. You know, I've watched people leave the church and they're going, well, I can worship God wherever, I, wherever I'm at. And the answer to that question is, yes, you can, but you won't. You know, this person who's going, I'm going to go to the lake and fish every weekend and I'll just worship God in the lake. Well, they might start worshiping God when they first do it. But eventually, they're not even thinking about God. They're thinking about the lake, you know, whatever else comes along with it, you know, it's, uh, and they're no longer thinking about God, and then it spirals downward from there, as they get into other sins and stuff that are, that are part of walking away from God, you know, very rare, and I'm not going to say it's impossible, very rare does somebody just all of a sudden find themselves in the pit of hell the day they walk away from the church, and there are some, you know, somebody goes back to an old sin that they were, you know, a raging alcoholic or extremely, uh, addicted to the drugs and they start getting right back into that, they might find themselves very quickly in the bottom of the pit. But that's not usually what happens. It usually is a very slow, drawn-out thing, and people go, one day they wake up and they go, how did I get here? You know, how did I get into this mess? I just don't understand it. And this is what happens with most people when they get into an adulterous affair. Very few people go out and say, wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to have an adulterous affair today. That's not usually the way it happens. Now, it does, again, there are people that do something like that. But it usually starts out with you're dissatisfied with the way your spouse is treating you. You're not happy with it, and then you find somebody who's being nice to you. And you just like being around them. And then it goes further and further and further, and the next thing you know, it's no longer a platonic relationship. It's ended up to be an adulterous relationship because that person is meeting some perceived need that you think your wife or husband isn't for isn't meeting for you. you know, and this is how sin gets into our life. So we look at this and say sin is a very slow slope. But it does hit that point where it just starts sliding and you find you don't seem to be able to get back out of it. You know, people go, well, I just can't. You know, and I've heard this so often. Oh, I just don't know what to do. I, I'm lost. I can't get out of where I'm at. Well, turn to God and let him be your savior and get you dragged out of where you're at. Uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress, and when Christian is trying to get to the gate, he, he ends up in the sloth of despa uh, despair, and he wallows around in it because he wasn't following the path that he was supposed to be on. 
and he's finally rescued by the evangelist calling him out and the buddy that was with him got out and he went back home and said this is this is too much I'm not doing it but you know we do this over and over again we drift from the path and we get to a place in our path where we go I can't get out of it on my own and actually that's a good place for us to be if we realize that I need to turn to God the problem is Many times we don't turn to God in the middle of that. We just say, well, it's all over. I, I'm, I'm, I, it's it. I just might as well go full bore and just be what I'm doing. And we want to be very careful of that. <clears throat> Again, in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian drifts off and he gets out into a, to a, a dungeon where he feels trapped and he's finally delivered when he realizes who he is. I mean, this a great picture. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a really good book about the Christian walk. And... Uh, you know, it's an allegory and it's a really strong picture of, of how we live with God and the dangers of not obeying or the benefits of obeying. Like I tell marriage couples, read the love and respect book. So, all right. And then he goes on in verse 13, he says, if they will become snares and traps to you, which is bad enough, you know, snares and traps are bad enough, and then he also goes, and there will be scourges in your side. And scourging is something we don't see very, you know, we don't have that discipline anymore, thank, thankfully. But a scourging left your body ripped open. When Jesus was scourged with the, with the, cata, uh, the Roman flagellum, technically, his flesh was laid wide open. And they said, you know, he got beat so bad that he was unrecognizable. And he was, strips of skin was pulled off. Strips of muscle were torn off. This is what he's talking about, scourging. And scourging, in, it could be anywhere from the whip to a, to a metal claw that they would drag across your body. Yeah. And it was designed to be excruciatingly painful. It wasn't necessarily designed to kill. It was to make great pain. And this is what he says, these people are going to cause you great pain. They're going to rip your flesh open, and you're going to be in pain. Then he says, thorns in your eyes. Now that sounds like it hurts. I can't even picture, I've never even heard of this being used anywhere. He says, they're going to be thorns in your eyes. Your sides, your flesh are not going to be able to handle, and you're not going to be able to see. Because if you get thorns in your eyes, you're not seeing, and, and basically saying you're going to be blinded. And how often do we spend our time being blinded by sin, being and just wallowing around? And like I said, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, I just don't know how I got here. Well, you were blinded by the sin. You, you, you were closed, your eyes were closed, and you ended up, and he says, and then all this will happen until you perish from this good land. And this is a prophecy that he doesn't know that he's giving. Because along comes Babylon many hundreds of years later, and they're taken out of their land because of all the sin that they've committed, being glued to the gods of the people that they didn't get rid of. Because when they finally got judged by Assyria for the, for the southern, uh, northern kingdom and Babylon for the southern kingdom, it was because of all the idol worship that they had been doing. And every time they turned around, they were worshiping idols. And when we get to... Uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, we're going to hear a refrain over and over. And this king was a good king, but he did not get rid of all the high places. This king was a good king, but he did not get rid of all the idols. 
And why? Because the people were idol worshipers. They had been all the way from the beginning, and they're going to stay idol worshipers until God says, okay, I have had it with you. And God is so patient. It's amazing. I can't even picture how patient God is with us. He has got so much patience because we would have given up on, we would have given up on ourselves long before God finally got hold of us in most cases. And yet God continues and he gives people enough leeway that when they finally either accept him and get the rejoicing or reject him, he says, you're without excuse. He says, no one at the white throne judgment will be without excuse. They will know that they have rejected God and have plenty of opportunities to be shown that they have rejected him. And when they stand before him, it's not even a matter of trying to prove to them that they're getting what they deserved. He's going to say, you rejected Jesus, and here's all your opportunities you had to follow him. Depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. And that's going to be a harsh thing for them to hear, and yet they're going to know without a shadow of doubt that they deserved it. They deny it on this world. You know, well, I don't need to follow God, or I don't, you know, they'll give us all kinds of excuses and everything, but when they stand before God, and he shows them every time that they denied him. Every time. And many people really, truly don't know all the times they deny him, because I've shared with you, I've, I've, I have seen people come to Christ, and, and their testimony is, and it's the first time I heard the gospel message. Well, in most cases, it's not the first time that the mes gospel message actually hit their eardrums. It may be the first time they actually heard the message in their brain, but it's usually not the first time that they heard the gospel message because God's going to keep giving that message to them. And the gospel message, we're all sinners. All of us are sinners. We're, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Every single person that has been born of man, which eliminates Jesus, <laughs> is a sinner. We are born sinners. We are born with a desire to sin, and we are going to sin. And we're going to sin because we are a sinner. We're not sinners because we sin. We are going to sin because we are sinners. We're born that way. And we are, our goal and destination is hell without the gift of Jesus Christ's love and sacrifice. And that is an eternal, complete turn to God and say, you are my savior. There is no other hope. Without you, I have no hope. And this is one thing I've shared with you. you know, when we become a Christian, we turn our back on any other option of heaven. We're putting our, you know, if you're a gambler playing, you know, playing poker, it's your all in. You know, everything I have is bet on this pot. Jesus is the only way. I'm putting everything in it. And, you know, it's kind of amazing to me that so many people will tell me they're a Christian and that they're going to depend on God to deliver them into, in, into heaven, but they live like they don't depend on God in this world. You know, how can you have that, you know, how can you trust God to deliver you for eternity when you can't trust God in this world? And we need to understand that. He promises to take care of us here. This is all our needs and all our wants. Yeah. He is absolutely 100% sovereign, and he's going to allow whatever he knows is best for us. And notice it is what he knows is best for us. Now, we don't always think that what 
that what he thinks is best for us is best for us. You know, oftentimes we're going to fight against it and go, God, I don't know why this isn't best. You know, I, I should be the rich man with a mansion on the hilltop and, and all the great businesses. And God goes, no, if you had all that, you wouldn't be following me. I know what you need. If you were able to handle that, you'd have the, the mansion on the hilltop and, and be the richest man in the, in, the, in the community so you could depend on, you know, give it to God and, and, let, and see missions worked out and done. But for most of us, he says, I know what's best for you and, this, and what you think is good for you is not good for you. And, you know, the idea, and I've said this, I love, the, I love the idea that God doesn't answer some of our prayers. And all of us can probably think of a prayer that, we've, that we made that we're glad that God did not answer. When we look back on our life and say, wow, God, I am really glad you didn't answer that prayer. Look at, look at what it did to that person. Or look what, look what it, you know, you know, I really thought I was supposed to get into that business and everybody in that business went to jail because it was so corrupt. You know, uh, you know we want to be very careful with this stuff. He says, I know what's best for you and I'm going to give you what's best for you. And when we don't think it's best for us, we need to go back to rule one. God's given us what's best. <laughs> You know, God knows what he's doing, he is true, and whenever we don't think he knows what he's doing or that he's not true, we go back to rule number one, that he's got, he's knows what's best and he knows what's true, and he is true. You know, we always keep this in mind and he's going to protect us, and he says, when you don't do these things, you get into trouble. How many times have you been hanging out with somebody and end up finding yourself getting into trouble because they weren't a Christian, and, and you say, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go witness to them. I've heard that line. I'm going to go witness to him. I'm going to hang out to him with them and witness. And I'm not saying we don't go out and hang, you know, talk with them. But, you know, you've got to be very careful because while you're witnessing to them, you can be drugged down a lot easier than you're going to witness and bring them up. It's very simple. You know, if somebody has been, been an alcoholic, then the last place you want to be doing is hanging out with somebody at the bar trying to witness to them. That's not a very smart move. You may think that there's no chance that you're going to drink and all this other stuff, but who knows what's going to happen, especially if you get away with it the first time and you get away with it the second time. And then you go, one day you're just in the right, right frame of mind and it all smells good and you know, it looks good and you kind of remember that it used to feel good a little bit. You forget, you forget about the bad parts of it. <laughs> and all of a sudden you've been drawn right back into it. If you, have a, if you have a weakness or you have something that was a weakness in your life, don't go anywhere near that weakness, you know, because it's not, it's not a good thing. I've heard people go, well, I can go back to the bar. I haven't done, you know, do what you want, but <laughs> it's not a good, not a smart move. Don't hang out with those that are following the wrong idols, because if you start cleaving to them, you're going to become like them. You know, we become like those we hang out with, and this is why we as a church are encouraged to come together to worship God so that we will become more like Christ as we hang out with others that are becoming more like Christ. You know, and it's very important for us to understand that. Why does God say meet together? For just that reason. So that we become more like him as we encourage one another. You know, and this is why I say, if you don't come to church and you're a Christian, you're going you're gonna to fall away from God. It's just a matter of time. It will happen. And then in verse 14, he says, no. verse 14, And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed which, 
of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you, all are come to pass unto you, and not one thing has failed thereof. And this very first statement, behold, I go the way of the earth means I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, uh, everybody, everything, in, everything in this world dies. And this is, we've covered this, the, you know, there's nothing new under the sun and everything is going to happen. Everything that happens is happening in our world today has happened in the past. Everything. You know, all the sins are still the same. All the activities are the same. The, the good is still there. The bad is still there. There's nothing new under the sun. Political intrigue was just as bad, and we see it in the Bible all over the place, the political intrigue that goes on, and we see it, we see it in our world. We see all the sins going on, and, and Joshua says, hey, I'm getting to that age. I'm going to die. And this is the one thing that we know. The absolute thing that we know for sure is going to happen to us is every single one of us is going to die someday unless we live till the rapture. And then that's the only way we're going to not die. And that means we, he takes us and we get our glorified body anyway. He just shortcuts the death process. But we know one thing. Barring the rapture, every single one of us is going to die. We just need to be ready with God for that day and, and encourage people in saying, I followed God. And this is what Joshua was saying. I've been following God. I'm not worried about it. I'm going, to, I'm going to step into the kingdom with God. And you know, for us as Christians, death is the greatest thing that can happen to us because we transition from this world into the presence of God to receive our reward from him. And having a reunion with other Christians and family members that are Christians, you know, he says, I'm going that way of the, of the world. And he goes, know in your heart and your souls that God has not failed you once. This is something we need to keep in mind. And I keep sharing this with you. Our attitude always needs to be to rehearse what God has done. When it looks like everything is going wrong, we look back and say, God, you did this for me. You did this for me. You did this for me. You did this for this person. You did this for this person. And you go, God, I'm going to trust in you because I know that you are trustworthy. And this is why you know, I encourage us to read the biographies. I encourage us to share with one another. I've also encouraged you to write down things that God has done in your life so that when you're in those hard places, when you feel like, oh, everything's wrong and nothing is right, and we've all been there at some point in our life where we just, if we go by our feelings, we go, nothing is right. We need to go back and say, oh, no, God's done this. God's done this. And he will do something in the future. Because Job was one of those people in the middle of all this trial. He could look into his life and say, you know, God, everything is bad. You know, I've never had anything. He could easily have forgotten about all of his wealth and his kids and all that he had. And he did for a while. He was in a pity party. Oh, woe was me. I've lost everything. And God says, I've got a blessing for you. I'm going to make it all right. God has a blessing for us in the long run. Even if it doesn't happen in this world, he's got a blessing for us in heaven. He'll reward us for all the trials that we've endured because he is going to make the reward. Verse 15, Therefore it shall come to pass that, that as all good things are come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. So again, he's making that reiteration of the problem. 
uh, the promise. Obey God, be blessed. Disobey God, have cursing upon you. And these blessings are not necessarily all wealth and good things because God says, I am with you. Just having God with us is a great blessing. Even when I go through trials and I know that God is with me, I feel like I'm blessed. You know, and I've shared with you, and I tell people at work, they think I'm crazy. I'm going, you know, well, how's your day? It's a great day. All my days are good. They go, you can't have all good days. I go, I choose to have good days. I choose to have good days. Now, well, it doesn't say happy. It tells us to be joyful, and it tells us to rejoice. Happy is, can, you know, I'm not happy in every day, but I'm going to be joyful and have a good day in every day. Because happiness, there's some things that just aren't happy events. You know, and if you have the death of a loved one, is, you know, is a joyful event because they went home, but it probably isn't a happy event. You're going to lose a relationship with somebody that you love. And there's going to be some sadness. There's going to be some sorrow. But it shouldn't be destructive because if they're a Christian, you're going to, spend, you're going to go and spend eternity with them. And we know that they're gone to heaven as long as we know they've gone to heaven. Now, if we don't know they've gone to heaven, then be sad all you want because you may never see them again. And it's too late. And we want to keep this in this. Joshua reiterates the promise. You do bad, and God's going to take you out of this land. That was what Moses had told him. Disobey, and God is going to remove you from this land. He's going to take it away from you. Verse 16, and when you have transgressed the covenant, and note this when, this is when I said, you know, Moses said it, and Joshua is saying it. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have, gone to, and have gone to serve other gods, and bowed yourselves down to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off this good land which he has given to you. He left the if, because he goes, just as Moses had said, he goes, not if you do it, when you do it. And for us as Christians, we need to be very careful. I've heard people go, well, if I sin, well, that's not the question of if you're going to sin. We are going to sin even as a Christian. The question is, will we repent and turn back to God? And how quickly will we return back to God? And he will discipline us. We're his children. He will discipline us when we disobey. And he will discipline us as his children a lot quicker than he will the lost person who's not his child. He wants them to come to him. He wants them to turn to him. But we're his children. And just like any other parent doesn't go out and spank some child that's not their own for disobedience, God doesn't spank the kids that aren't his. Now, he lets the consequences come their way, but he disciplines us and says, you're not going to get away with this. You're my child. You're going to learn to be obedient. And discipline comes quickly for us. And he says, when you disobey God and break his covenant, he will remove you. And he said quickly, and we know that uh, a thousand years was not all that quick as far as humans were concerned, but pretty quick as far as God's concerned. <laughs> you know, God's definition of quick is definitely not the same as our definition of quick. Jesus told the disciples, behold, I come quickly. You know, that was 2,000 years ago, <laughs> uh, which for God is quick. <laughs> you know, 2,000 years for God is just about two days. It's no big deal to him. Yeah. You know, his, his comparison from an eternal framework is, you know, hey, you know, if I waited 10,000 years, it would be quick. You know, from, a, from an eternal perspective, 
How long is 10,000 years in a, in, a, in, a, in a relationship to eternity? You couldn't even measure it because eternity has no end. Now, it's not, even a, it's not even a twinkling of the eye. 10,000 years wouldn't even be a twinkling of an eye in, in, in terms of e eternity. And that's the quickest thing we can measure. So he says, I'm, God will do it quickly. He will bring judgment upon you. All right, let's close in prayer. And Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've given us. Lord, help us to be courageous for you. Help us to learn to walk the way that you want us to. Help us to share the gospel with others so that they can get saved. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.